Good morning. There is a lot going on here at Calvary Chapel in the month of October. The bulletins will be out this week, and uh, Sal's done a great job, Pastor Sal's done a great job of letting you know some of the things that are happening. But as I like to say, there's really no reason for anyone to feel disconnected. We live in a world where being disconnected is the devil's objective, especially for Christians, to get you in a place where you feel alone, to have you in a place where you feel like nobody understands what you're going through, or no one can relate to the things you're dealing with. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Amen? It's a lie. There's always someone that God can raise up who's been through what you're going through or is going through what you're going through or will go through what you're going through. So it's important to understand that God has provided fellowship for us in the body of Christ. He's brought us to a place where we can invest in one another's lives and be encouraged by one another. That only happens if you're here. I'm not saying it can't happen at a coffee shop. I'm saying it only happens if you're in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the reason why online church doesn't work. Because you can't do online what needs to be done in person. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. Amen? This morning, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, where we have been studying the letters to the seven churches. These are letters that were written by Jesus, written down by John, but given to John to deliver to these seven churches in what today would be called Western Turkey, proconsular Asia at that time. These churches were representative of a number of different things. First of all, they were actual churches. They were churches that Jesus wrote letters to real congregations in these actual cities, but they also represent times in church history, eras, if you will, in church history where uh, certain things were indicative of the time period. But additionally, they also describe a church at any time throughout the centuries that's dealing with the problems and the challenges that that particular church was dealing with. So they're representative in that way. And finally, uh, churches have problems, but people have problems. And many times, the problems in the church are related to the problems that the people in the church have. So maybe you have problems. Maybe some of the things we're going to talk about today relate to you personally. So there are at least four ways to look at these letters, and we're going to do that this morning. Before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you looking at your word today to be able to be encouraged from your word that you would speak to our hearts. We're grateful for the fellowship that we have here at Calvary Chapel, for the worship time, and for our Sunday school ministries, all of the servants that serve so faithfully the many, many children you've blessed us with. And from the nursery to the junior high, we ask that you would use all of us in in some way, Lord, and especially those that are called to teach the Sunday school. Help us to be able to reach our children with the truth of the gospel. We live in an age where Truth is at a premium, and the world is doing its best to try to keep our kids from knowing the truth about you and fill their minds with perversion and fill their minds with evil and wicked thoughts that they might give their hearts over to the world. But we know better, and we pray against those things in Jesus' name. 
And so we ask now that you not only bless our time together, but the children's time together, and then our fellowship throughout the remainder of this day during our coffee hour. We ask that every Sunday would be an uplifting time for each and every one of us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we continue. Now we're looking at the letter to Pergamum. And this is in Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 12. You can turn there with me. Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 12. I'm going to read the letter. It says, To the angel of the church, and that would be the messenger or perhaps the pastor, the leader of the church. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness or martyr, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrifice to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So like all of the other letters, you have these commendations, you have these corrections, you have these encouragements and these promises of reward for those who overcome. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the city of Pergamum. It was probably founded, at least the church in this city was probably founded by Ephesian missionaries shortly after 51 AD. But this city was located in the capital, in the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Now, a capital city like Washington, D.C., is oftentimes very corrupt because it's the seat of power. And the kinds of people who crave power are corrupt. I don't think we need to wonder about that. Power corrupts, or tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And you'll know this truth, that the more power a person has, the more likely they are to be vulnerable to corruption. It's just human nature. So the city was a seat of power, a capital city, the capital city of that Roman province of Asia. This city had three temples which specifically worshipped Roman emperors. They worshipped Roman emperors. They worshipped government. Not hard to imagine in our world today. Three temples that worshipped Roman emperors. They worshipped them as gods. So it helps us to understand why Jesus used the language that he used when writing to this church of the first century. But let's talk a little bit about the name. Pergamum, interestingly enough, means literally elevated or elevated by marriage. We might say marrying up. To marry up is to marry above your station. Now, we don't live in a society or a culture, generally, that has peerage, that is nobility or monarchy. 
There, there is an element of elitism, yes, but it's based on different things. It's not necessarily based on your name or your birthright or your family or your ancestry. We've all been aware over the last few weeks with the passing of Queen Elizabeth just how peerage works. Nobility works in that you're born into these systems and you're evaluated on the basis of your DNA, your link to the sovereign or to the monarch. And if we take a moment and take a deep breath and get past the passing of a queen who was a very good example to many people and led her country through some of the most difficult times in the UK, if we just take a step back and think about peerage for a minute, is there anything more racist than to say that your birth makes you better than someone else? I'm not picking on the queen. I'm just telling you, when you think it all the way through, it's really sad. And I'm so glad we don't live in a country that has a monarchy. Because you should be evaluated on the basis of your merit and who you are, not on who your parents were. Or whether you can trace your lineage back to Henry VIII or Queen Victoria. Again, I'm not angry about it. I'm just making a point. When I look at that, I think to myself, how sad. And many times in that culture... And in many cultures, people want to get married, but if the one person is far above the station of the other, it's considered to be an inappropriate union. Because one person is a working class person and the other is of nobility or maybe elite or has money and the other doesn't have money. You have this sort of discrimination at a minimum, prejudice perhaps, and even racism because it's based on something that really is not an admirable quality because each and every one of us, if you look around, we, we were not in control of who our parents were, right? I mean, if you could have made a choice, maybe some of you would have changed some of your family ancestry, if you could have. People are obsessed with tracing their, their lineage now, but there's nothing you can do about it. What's done is done. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with embracing our differences. I think it's a wonderful thing to have diversity. But our skin color, our facial features, our height, all of the things that we inherit genetically really don't affect who we are as people of character. And yet there are many unions, many marriages that are put together, arranged on the basis of someone's nobility, someone's station. Certain nations or certain countries like India uh, have a caste system where your family determines who you can interact with and what jobs you can have. I think we would all agree, praise God, we live in the United States of America. Amen? We have our problems. But can you imagine if you wanted to be, I don't know, let's say a teacher. And someone just said to you, well, you can never be a teacher because of the color of your skin. Or because of your family name. Or because you don't have enough money. Or because of the language you speak. Or where you came from. Well, when Pergamum, as a city, was named, it was named... In an interesting way, it was named after this concept of marrying up, above your station. So if we understand what that means, and we've talked a little bit about that already, then why would this city be named that? Well, the person who marries up never has a problem with it. It's always a good deal. It's the person that marries down that gets criticized. 
if you will, if there is such a thing as marrying down. But marrying up, that's what the word means. And I think it's very important. It's indicative of the problems that this church actually had. And I just find it so fascinating. The Holy Spirit uses the names of these churches to tell us a little bit about who they are. And I just think that it's the Holy Spirit teaching us some things through some interesting analogies and examples. For example, elevated by marriage. Well, listen, this church married the world. This church married up, unlike Smyrna, who were being persecuted, or Ephesus, who, as a church, they were a very desirable group of people. They had their problems, but they were a good church. This church wasn't necessarily a terrible church, but they were known, like the name for the city in which they gathered, for marrying up. That is, in order to avoid some of the persecution, they joined themselves with the world and the things in the world. And if when we get to it in a little bit, you'll see, if we look at our, our world today, if we look at the church in the world today, this is a significant problem, and we'll get there. But let's talk a little bit about Jesus' approach to this church. Now, now that you know that about the city and the church itself and the name of the city and what it means, notice that Jesus approaches this church. It says in verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Now, we talked about this in chapter 1, in verse 16. This is a symbol of the word of God. From Hebrews 4.12, we know that the word of God is a two-edged sword, a double-edged sword. So we're talking about the word of God coming from the mouth of Jesus. Well, that's not hard to imagine. He is God. And when he speaks, he speaks the words of God because he's God. But that symbol, the written word of God, the spoken word of God, the literal word of God, the living word of God, Jesus, out of his mouth comes the word of God. His voice is the very word of God. And when the word of God is spoken, it will expose not only the things that are good, but the things that are not so good. And he approaches his church with the word of God. Now, the word of God isn't always correction. It's oftentimes it's encouragement. And this church receives both. First, he commends the church. And I want to mention this as we go through these letters to the churches, uh, there are two that don't receive any correction, but where there is a letter and a correction, the commendation, the encouragement always comes first. Why would that be? Because I think you know this, that if you're going to affect change in someone, you don't start by blasting them. You start by encouraging them. You encourage them, these are the things you're doing well. And now that we've talked about those things, let's talk about the things you're not doing so well. And that's what happens. But it starts with a commendation in verse 13. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That's a description, and the people receiving this letter would have agreed with that description. Because as we talked about, there were these temples where the Roman emperors were actually worshipped as gods. This church was faithful. They were faithful to God despite the strong satanic influence around them. I think this very accurately describes in many ways what we see in America. Uh, Most of the church, the true church, is faithful to God. It's not that they're not faithful to God. It would be too harsh to suggest that they have turned their backs on God. There are some gatherings called churches that have, but... 
in general. If you look at our culture today, it's a good description of what we're dealing with. But this church was faithful to God, but they were forced as a culture by Rome to claim Caesar as Lord. So the way that you would survive was you kind of had to split hairs. You worshiped God, Jesus as God, but when it came to the government, when it came to Caesar as Lord, you had to at least acknowledge Caesar in order to not be persecuted. So many people within the church, they had to walk a fine line. We don't know anything about that the last three years. Speaking the truth, but then also realizing if I speak the truth, I might get canceled. I might get fired from my job for a post when everything I tweeted or posted was absolutely undeniably true. I'm going to get fired because that's not the truth that others want to hear. We know something about this. We also know that many churches have kind of played the game, said the right things. This church went in that direction. They were faithful to Jesus, but they were also acknowledging Caesar as Lord. So the problems begin to come because if you're going to allow for that kind of worldliness in the church, you're going to bring problems into the church. And they did. Now, yes, they refused to renounce Christ as their only Lord, but they had to walk that fine line. They were faithful despite witnessing the martyrdom of Antipas. Now, this is interesting because this may be the name of an actual person, or it could be a symbol because the word Antipas in Greek means against everyone, against all. Antipas, against all. Have you felt like that the last couple of years? Like, we're against this whole system. And when you are, eventually, you, you experience persecution. He was a faithful witness. The word for witness in Greek is the same as martyr. He was martyred for his commitment to God. His unwillingness, this individual, was unwilling to bow. Unwilling to play the game, say the right things. Unwilling to walk the way the world was calling him to walk. He was the first Christian to be put to death by the Roman state. And the persecution begins. It doesn't end, but it starts there. Now, Satan's throne, referred to by Jesus, probably refers to those three Roman temples. I think they would understand it that way. You have three Roman temples in the city, in the capital city, where government, and specifically Caesar, is worshipped as God. Again, if we look at our own capital city, it's not hard to imagine. We have buildings that house groups of individuals, and uh, I think they think sometimes they're little gods. We know better. Well, Jesus does correct this church because here's the problem. When you walk that fine line with the world, when you marry the world, when when you connect to the world in that way, the problems of the world come through your door as a church. That's the problem. You think you can be nice. You think you can step aside and say, well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. We won't say it's bad. We won't say it's good. We won't say much of anything about it. In fact, we won't bring it up because we don't want to keep anybody out of the church. We want it to be seeker friendly. So we're not going to confront sin. Uh, We're not going to talk too much about it. And listen, churches like this in our area have one consistent attribute. Every church is filled with sinners. Amen? But a true church is filled with repentant sinners. 
And a worldly church is filled with sinners that never seem to repent. And they're not asked to repent. They're not challenged to repent. So is it any wonder why they don't? Oh, but they might leave. That's okay. If the choice is repent or leave, I'm okay with that. Actually, let me see. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Who was it that could have possibly preached a message like that? Well, there was John the Baptist, but also Jesus and his disciples. And it should be us. It's the same gospel. See, we've got to lovingly let people know they need to change. Or, yes, the door is there for those who don't want to change. We don't want you to leave, but we don't want you to stay and not change. But that's not the attitude of a church that marries the world. A church that marries the world is very happy to have warm bodies in the pews. So as we continue to make application here, this is the kind of church Pergamon was becoming. So Jesus corrects this church. He says in verse 14, and I'll explain this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Now, this is the inevitable result of marrying the world. You end up with a church with worldly people. And again, we're, we're all sinners. I'm not suggesting we're, we're, we're like better than anybody. But we understand what's right and what's wrong because we have the double-edged sword, the word of God from Jesus. So we know when we get it wrong, we know it's wrong. Right? Amen? That doesn't make us better. We may be twice the sinners. But the point is, we know when we sin what it is. It's sin, and we get it wrong. And we repent of that. But when you don't know what something is, or whether it's right or wrong, then you run the risk of cultivating an unhealthy environment in the church where you have people that continue to sin and live in sin, and they don't even know it's wrong or or care to know it's wrong. I can't have that as the pastor of this church, I'm accountable to make sure you know that how you're living isn't in accordance with the double-edged sword, the word of God. What you do with that is your responsibility. My responsibility is to, like Jesus, deliver the word of God. And you know, it's like bleach. You use bleach, it kills germs. Or Listerine, it kills the germs that cause bad Christians. All right, so here, here's what you got. You got... You got the word of God, and it, what happens is someone says, well, I'm not, I'm not going to move out. I like living with my partner. Oh, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to not do this thing. I, I, I do this thing recreational, and I'm, uh, rec- recreationally, and I'm okay with it. Well, here's the problem. If we share the word of God, a person's now confronted with their sin, and they have to make a choice. We give them the choice. We give them the truth. So that was starting to change here, and Jesus identified it because they had people that were like Balaam. They were motivated by greed. Balaam was motivated by greed. He was a prophet, a very strange individual, wasn't a Jew, but he was a pagan person, but he he had a relationship with God. That's a whole different study. But what he did was he wanted to make money from Balak, the king of the Moabites, but God would not allow him to pronounce curses against the Israelites. So what he did was he advised and consulted Balak and said, look, if you seduce the people with the women, send the women into the camp, these women were prostitutes, and and tell them this is how we worship our gods, and they would eat the food sacrificed to idols, and they would experience and practice sexual immorality. I don't need to tell you what sexual immorality is. You live in America. 
So as we think about this, they permitted themselves and others to practice idolatry, which is greed, Paul says. Greed is idolatry. So materialism, that's worldly. That's worldly, okay? Let's agree. Is it worldly? Amen. They permitted themselves and others to commit sexual immorality. That's carnal. That's worldly. Churches should not be filled with Christians that are involved in inappropriate sexual relationships with members of the same sex or other sex. (gasps) How can you say that? Oh, I didn't say that. That's the word of God, the double-edged sword saying that. And if you don't like it, this definitely is not the church for you. Do we hate you? No, we love you. Enough to tell you the truth. But you can't go on married to the world and expect to receive the blessings of Christ. It it, it doesn't work that way. And Jesus tells them that. These are Jesus' words to this church and to all churches. And another thing they did, and we talked about this when we studied the letter to the church at Ephesus. They had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which was a doctrine where the the people elevated the clergy above the laity. That is, the pastors and the leaders were considered better than the people. And we know from Jesus' letter to the Ephesian church, he hated that. I hate that, he said. I hate it too, by the way. And they served only themselves. And that's not what Jesus said our leaders are supposed to be. Be like Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, these are the kinds of things that were going on there. Well, hard, hard to imagine a world uh, filled with powerful, corrupt people. Uh, you know, when you think about that kind of environment, is it any surprise where people want to be in charge? I mean, really, why do our politicians run for office, the majority of them? Graft, corruption, power, influence. And, and this was a capital city. This was a city where that was the currency of trade. So we're seeing the culture has now invaded the church. And is it any wonder why people are involved in inappropriate sexual relationships? People are greedy, materialistic, and seeking power. Of course, it's no surprise at all. They needed to, and Jesus says this here, repent. The word means to change. It starts with a change of mind. It results in a change of behavior. They needed to repent otherwise. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully. Jesus says, I will soon come to you, that is the church, and I will fight against them. See, he's appealing to the church that wasn't involved in these things, but was tolerating it. There are people in the church that tolerate sin and may not even practice some of those sins. They fly a rainbow flag. They think of themselves as magnanimous and gracious. They need to repent. They need to change. You don't tolerate sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to come against them. That is the sinners. But in the process, you're, you're being rebuked. If you think this way, why are you being rebuked? Because you're allowing this to continue. And you're not speaking up against it. Because you're married to the world. That's what he would say to this church. And he says, I will come against you, or come to you and fight against them, notice, with the sword of my mouth. So the word of God is going to convict these people, the people who are sinning. Jesus is going to deal with this church. 
And he promises, promises them that. They needed to repent of their corruption, their worldliness, immediately. And they're warned that their church would be purged. Now, this is interesting because I've seen this happen in churches where a church is very successful, quote-unquote, and then a new pastor comes in, starts preaching the Word of God, and it ends up being half the size. And people say, boy, that pastor is killing that church. He's destroying that church. No, I think he's doing what Jesus did. Preaching the word of God like that bleach, just killing the germs. Getting those people to a place where they're either going to repent or leave. Not a bad thing. The word of God is what brings purity to the body of Christ. And that's what we're told here. He will intervene if we refuse to deal with corruption within the church. He will intervene. Jesus was willing to forcefully drive out the willfully unrepentant from this church. Oh, but we in America fly flags and have statements of toleration. Well, this is true. In verse 17, you as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's why it's not just a letter to Pergamum in the first century, to the churches. This church, every church, all churches, anyone who claims to be a part of a church can receive this message. To him who overcomes, that's overcomes, gets past these things, I will give some of the hidden man, and I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, I've already told you that all of the rewards to those who overcome are just symbols of Jesus. Every single one of them point to Jesus. Last week, we talked about not being hurt by the second death, salvation in Jesus. Access to the tree of life. Who's the tree of life? Jesus. So this is another symbol of Jesus. So we know how to interpret it, but let's talk about why. The manna, the manna. We know what manna was. I mean, you, you know, because you've probably read the book of Exodus. Manna was the bread sent down from heaven to sustain Israel for their wandering days, their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What they did, according to God's word in Exodus 16, is they took a small portion of this manna and they hid it within the Ark of the Covenant. It was probably kept in there for some period of time, maybe near the Ark, but they hid manna and it was preserved. It's called the hidden manna. Uh, it's this similar parallel to the Passover, the Jewish Passover celebration, the Afikomen, which is the hidden manna, the hidden bread. Uh, and Jesus is hidden to the Jews He's the Afikoman. He's the one that's hidden from them right now, but will be revealed in the last days. But the hidden manna is a symbol of Jesus. It's the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus used that very phrase, that, that very analogy to describe himself. I am the bread, the bread of life that came down from heaven, right? That's him. And then there's this white stone. Now, this is one of those things that puzzles people because we really don't see any symbol in the scriptures of a white stone, and therefore it's not a symbol. It's a literal thing. Well, then what does it mean? Well, we may not recognize this, but a white stone was used in court at that time to represent acquittal from criminal charges. So the white stone represented acquittal. Obviously, a black stone or not something other than the white stone would mean you're guilty. So the idea is there's this innocence that is provided to those that overcome this, this purging of sin, but also this acknowledgement of your righteousness in Christ. Notice there's a new name, a new name, and it replaces our old name. Our old name is sin. Our new name is life. 
And so we receive life through the hidden manna, who is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. All symbols of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So to him who overcomes, you get Jesus. Now, this is interesting because you don't overcome and then Jesus says, okay. It's through Jesus that you overcome. But the reward of overcoming in the power of the Spirit is Jesus. If you're looking for a reward other than Jesus in Christianity, you're going to be very disappointed. He is our reward. He is our blessing. He is our all in all. He is what we receive for overcoming sin and death through him. He is both the means of our salvation and the reward of our salvation. So understand that. Oh, all we get is Jesus? Do you need anything else? Jesus is the hidden manna that pardons us. The bread. Without leaven, the bread, the body without sin. Now, all of this is written to the church of the first century, called the church of Pergamum, that had some issues. They were faithful in some ways, but in other ways they had become so worldly that they were letting sin in the door and not confronting it. This describes a time in church history called the secular age, or the secular church. It describes a time period in church history from about 316 A.D. to 500 A.D. And as I've mentioned, each of the seven churches successively describe the apostolic age, the time of persecution, the persecuted church. And now we get to the secular church. And this took place from 316 to 500 A.D., roughly, a time period in church history where the church married the world. And so these letters are both encouragements and prophetic revelations of what's going to happen in the body of Christ. So the church was elevated when it officially married the Roman Empire, During this time period, the Emperor Constantine I declared himself a Christian in 312 A.D. It was a very sad day in Christianity because it was political. The Edict of Milan sanctioned the toleration of Christianity in 313 A.D. And then he presided over the heretical dispute between a group of Christians called the Donatists who lived in northern Africa. This took place in about 316 A.D. And this is interesting. They, they had a distinctive worship style. They were instructed by the word of God. They emphasized the mystical union of the righteous inspired by the Holy Spirit. They emphasized discipleship and were committed to nonviolence and social justice. Sounds like me. Sounds like you. It sounds like the church. Granted, they may have had some interesting teachings and practices, but they were persecuted by the worldly church because they stood for the word of God and what it taught. They opposed the state church, and they saw the Catholic church, the Holy Roman church, as impure and corrupted. So, this church is symbolic of a time in church history where the same problems that existed in this first century church existed for centuries, and in many ways still exist today. So what did Constantine I do? He sent troops to deal with these extremists. How do you like being called an extremist? I don't mind at all. I share this with Lorientes. You can call me an extremist because the, thing I be- the things I believe are extremely good for this nation. 
and for us. So they were a little extreme. They believed what the Bible said and took it literally and worshipped in the power of the Holy Spirit and didn't want to be a part of a worldly church. So in 317 AD, this man Constantine the first in 317 sent troops. This was the first time that Christians, so-called, were found persecuting other Christians. It resulted in banishments and even executions. It failed completely, forcing Constantine to withdraw and cancel the persecutions in 321 A.D. And you think you got it bad. We look at things and we're like, oh, we're going to make it to the midterms. Constantine I, the emperor of the Roman Empire, couldn't beat the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. You have to understand that God is in control, amen? Our job isn't to worry about the world, it's to get the world out of the church. We get the world out of the church, there's nothing that can stop us. We bring the world in, there's nothing that can save us. I wish some churches that have closed would have realized that. That you can't bring in all of this worldliness and expect the church to prosper. Anyway, this was a very dark time in church history, even though it looked like everything was going great. You know, he summoned, this man Constantine summoned the first council of Nicaea, which was the first ecumenical council in 325 AD. It was not a good thing necessarily. But the council condemned a false teaching called Arianism, which kind of denied the Trinity. And it acknowledged the Trinity as it's known today. So that's a good thing. So in a way, at this time in church history, this church actually did remain true to his name, the way that the church of Pergamum had, and Jesus mentions in this letter. But then a man by the name of Theodosius I later declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380 AD. Talk about marrying up. The church married the world, even though his edict didn't actually get enforced until 392 AD. That was the worst thing that could have happened to the church at that time. Then he passed legislation prohibiting all pagan cultic worship within the empire. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? Yeah, it was a state church. It wasn't a good thing. <clears throat> the emperor, as Pontifus Maximus, ruled the church as an extension of the Roman government. The Roman throne had be, indeed become Satan's throne, mentioned by Jesus in this letter. What Satan couldn't accomplish through persecution, like he had during the previous era, in the time of the persecuted church, he certainly gained through corruption. See, if the devil can't persecute us and destroy us, he allows corruption to try to destroy us. And corruption is far more effective at destroying the church than persecution, as we well know. Church corruption was rampant now that power, power was available through Christianity. That's all you need to do to destroy a church. Give power to people. Authority over others. Have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, where the clergy now are like little princes and kings and queens. And that's all we need. See, the church then stopped looking for Christ to return. Why? Well, they reigned on earth. They didn't really care for Christ to return because they were sitting on the world's throne. And this describes not only a time period in church history, 
from 316 to 500 AD. It's not only written to an actual church. It describes, as you've already seen, and we've already made some application, any church at any time in any culture that's become worldly. So we call this the worldly church. Believe me, you probably, within walking distance, could find one. Probably very easily. Let's say that the worldly church is a problem. But let's not stop and, and let, let's, let, let's stop thinking that it's all bad. Let's not stop there, though. Let's say that the problems need to be fixed, but what good can we say about the worldly church? Well, they believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's a plus. But they tolerate corruption and political interference within the church. I often wonder when these liberal politicians run for office and give speeches in churches, I think to myself, what church was that so I don't go there? You got some maniac who wants to kill children in the womb in a pulpit pandering for votes and people cheering him on. I might call that a worldly church. They're comfortable with little or no confrontation with the world. Oh, don't bother the world. We like the world. The world gives us power, credibility, prestige, money, and we can do whatever we want and no one's going to challenge us. Sexual immorality, no problem. No one wants to know. There are some churches, and this just happens over time. Over the years, I've had opportunity to meet a lot of people in the area, some from certain churches, some from others, and I'm not going to mention the church by name, but there's one particular church that I noticed a trend that every single time I counseled somebody that attended that particular church, that large church, they were in sexual sin. And I started to take note of that. I mean, they were confessing it to me. Uh, Obviously, they didn't feel comfortable confessing it there. So they come to me. I'm, I'm not even their pastor to confess their sexual sin. Obviously, they want to repent. Praise God. But they're going to a church where no one even asked the question. And apparently, they didn't even have the conversation. And to a person, over a decade, every person that I talked to was dealing with some form of sexual sin. That doesn't mean that they're telling people to practice that sin. It means that they're not telling people it's wrong. Can I make that assumption? If you believe it, say amen. I mean, come on. So, this type of church, the worldly church, is comfortable with little or no confrontation. And they welcome people that practice idolatry or greed, materialism. Actually, they're the best kinds of people. They give a lot. They write big, fat checks. Why wouldn't we want worldly people? We want to put an addition on the building. We want to fix the parking lot. This is called sarcasm. Are you from New Jersey? Say amen. (laughs) They welcome people that practice that. And they welcome people in sexual sin. And they don't challenge them with the word. And again, they elevate the clergy or the leaders above the common person who attends the church. So that's the worldly church. If I've described the church you've attended or, ha- or thinking about attending, well, now you know. Don't attend that church. Or preach the word in that church. Because that's what Jesus says. Deal with this. If they won't deal with it, well, you can come here. We deal with sin here. Oh, no, we're not 4,000 people. Yeah, but maybe that's not a bad thing. We're not a worldly church. I think you know that. We're sinners. We repent. We're saved by grace. We're sinners. We're not better. We just know the truth about our sin and are willing to admit it. Amen? 
As we close, I want to point out that this really describes a syndrome. A syndrome of tolerating the world. I call it Eli's syndrome. Because there was a man by the name of Eli. He was a priest. He was supposed to be telling people the right thing to do. But he didn't. And I know he didn't do it because his sons were about the worst people you can imagine. He cultivated an environment in his household where sin was tolerated and practiced and even celebrated, and he never said anything about it. I'm not talking about the person that's involved in sin. I'm talking about the person that tolerates sin and the church that tolerates sin without bringing it to the forefront by preaching the word of God. Look at 1 Samuel. I'll read it for you. In chapter 2, verse 22, we read, Now, Eli was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. Now, notice this, how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Wow. Leaders in a church involved in sexual sin with the congregants. Good thing that doesn't happen. So he said to them, why do you do such things? That's my question as well. I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Now, my sons, no. It is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. Ooh, is he more concerned about what they're doing or people finding out? If a man sins against another man, God may meditate for him, or mediate, excuse me, mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And they were. Eli's syndrome is a syndrome that describes the person who's content to let things keep going in the wrong direction. Pastors who are more concerned about their 401k or their IRA than preaching the truth. More concerned with the popularity and the growth of a church than perhaps the church getting a little smaller and yet a little stronger. I think it's very important that you reach a place in your life as a minister, as a ministry leader, where you're never guilty of this kind of thing. And when you see people practicing willfully practicing unrepentant sin in their lives, you lovingly tell them the truth about it. I said lovingly. Did you pick up on that? Lovingly tell them the truth about that and try to reach them. And if they don't want to change, that's their choice. We don't change anybody. God changes them as they allow themselves to change, as they repent. But this environment should be so uncomfortable For someone living in outright rebellion, that we don't have to ask them to leave. That they either change or they go. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we never want to become a worldly church. And it would be easy in today's world to become exactly that. It's so tempting to want to be well thought of of the world. And so tempting to want to be married up and gain prestige and notoriety and be the church that everyone wants to go to. Lord, but this church had problems because they were corrupt, because they had become worldly. We don't want those problems. We want your blessings. And we don't want people who are involved in these sins to not feel welcome here. They're very welcome here. They're welcome to change and become who God wants them to be according to his word. But Lord, may we make sure that in our hearts as individuals, in our families, at our businesses, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, that people know where we stand. 
not just in our churches, in our lives, that we would never become that worldly group of people that when people find out we're Christians and say, really? May the world know who we are. May they know who you are as we preach your truth through our lives and by our words when necessary. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.